0: Hey, welcome to Thinking Baptist. Uh, this feels a little weird, Sam, because you're just like oh, across the wall from me. But hi.
1: Well, you know, gypsum and uh, paper is, <laughs> you know, okay, so I, I had to go to I um, I didn't have to, but I, I wanted to go to a meeting that, that was led by a survival guy a couple years ago. And he was talking about how to get out of buildings when the stuff goes bad. Right. You know, cause that's what I do. What I do.
0: Is this what started your oh. whole survival tactile bag?
1: <laughs> I don't have a tactile bag.
0: Fetish. Right now. Should we call it a fetish? It,
1: it, it is a fetish. I have a lot of gear, but uh, it's
0: not a fetish because we uh, lived through the historic flood in Columbia and everything that you believe And have, uh, prepared for was le- legitimized.
1: Yeah. Right. You so, never know. So he was saying, uh, you know, be, people get trapped in, in these buildings uh, when, when it's it's simply drywall between them and, and an exit. So he's like, you know, always know how to get to an exit and don't let, you know, a piece of paper and gypsum or drywall stop you. And, it, you know, unless it's, unless there's like a, a stud there, it's pretty easy to, you know, punch through drywall and get get out of drywall. Um
0: so he was saying that people in that case, in that situation, would not punch through the wall.
1: Yeah, right. So, so he was saying, uh, you know, there are lots of people who hunker down in their in their office building or in their in that room that they're in or whatever. If if there's a situation where they know they need to get to an exit and they don't pursue that because they think, well, the door is blocked and I can't get out of here, and it's like, well, if you're in a life and death situ- situation and you know where the exit is punch through the drywall. <laughs> like get out of that room. And you know, a lot of people in, in the room with me at the time were like, Wow, I never thought about that.
0: Okay, so That's do you Do, good, do
1: good, you uh, remember metaphor. the
0: office episode where Dwight's in charge of the fire safety?
1: <laughs> and he, well he, he starts the, the fire. And in he the, starts in the, the
0: fire in the trash can and he locks the doors and to see and what Stanley will has do. a heart attack. Yeah Stanley has a heart attack but people try to go up into the ceiling, the <laughs> drop down right. ceiling and the cat comes back <laughs> right. through
1: Right, Angela throws her cats that she has in her uh, file cabinet. That
0: she's been keeping in her file cabinet. But yes, that's what this are Which what Dwight later saying.
1: kills, right. But uh, yes, I mean, it's, you know, and that's a lighthearted take on it. But yeah, I mean, punch punch through the drywall. Like, know where the exits is hard, know your surroundings, and, and be able to say, okay, I'm in this, you know, square room that we created, but... It's only, you know, pieces of board and pieces of paper and some loose rock kind of in the middle. And and when this stuff goes down, I know I can get out of here, even if the door is blocked.
0: Okay, so this is, I mean, this is a good metaphorical beginning for where I am right now. So I just finished my first pastorate. I pastored Emmanuel Baptist Fellowship for two and a half years, one year as interim and then another year and well, and some change year and a half and change, I guess I should say as the pastor and just recently felt a call that it was time for me to move on. You know, I don't, I don't know how this, this Baptist call thing is very interesting because we're not like the Methodist that have a, a you know, kind of a, a governing board above us that say it's time for, for you to move on. You go to annual conference, you get a new assignment, and, uh, sometimes it reminds me of fruit basket turnover. Did you ever play that game as a kid?
1: Were I, you, t- I, I didn't play many games as a kid, but I've heard of that game. Yes.
0: Yes. And so you go there and then fruit basket turnover, you're in a new situation in a new congregation. Now that I've come to realize now that I understand and have colleagues in the Methodist tradition that it's not necessarily just an assignment, you know it is kind of a matching situation where the congregation has a say and also the candidate has a say which makes it better i think and more effective but that's a strange kind of situation for those of us who are baptist because in the baptist world you go through a pastor search process that involves a committee from the church meeting um candidates looking at resumes, looking through resumes and deciding who they want to interview and really deciding on the whole process. You know, there's some churches that do um, one set of interviews and then choose their three candidates. Uh, There's some that say, we're going to look at 50 candidates or 15 candidates. That's all up to the pastor search committee. So when I first felt a call to Emmanuel, you know, I was, I knew what that call was. And my call was very specific to help a church who was looking for vision, was looking for identity, who was looking for articulation of the things that they could do well and the way that they could engage their community. And when we got to that point that we had established a vision and a purpose, we had solidified who we were as a church, including a move to a smaller space so that more of the budget could go to missions, and we had become a resource center for the community that we were in, then I knew it was time for me to move on. But that moving on has been kind of a difficult um, transition for me because I've been in passer search committees. In some cases, I've lost out or not been called, however you want to describe it. But there is kind of a, unfortunately, a competitive nature to, you know, being up against other candidates that someone gets chosen and wins in a sense and someone doesn't get chosen and loses in a sense, unfortunately. And... That's been something that's really been difficult to process because, as someone who's going through the call process, you're waiting and you're anticipating you're praying you're talking to your family about the possibility of this church about a possibility of a move about the possibility of in my case moving from part-time to full-time and we have a 7-month-old so what does that look like for our family for childcare for all of those different possibilities and you've been living in this kind of other reality while you're still in the the present reality thinking about a future and then that future just kind of disappears into thin air and you go, you know, if you are someone who is really pursuing another position, you could be holding these conversations with two or three or maybe possibly even four different churches at one time uh, until you get to a certain point where you feel like you should let the other churches know, okay, this per this congregation will probably call me. And it's just such a crazy kind of experience. And I've I've talked to, right, so we just got back from General Assembly, and I've talked to some other young Baptists who have said similar things about, this is just kind of a a crazy process. Whoever made this up. (laughs) So you, being uh, someone who is in the Baptist world and has been in the Baptist world and also talks to an academic Uh, on your thinking religion show where, where did the pastor search process in the Baptist tradition even come from? And in the modern articulation of that, are we doing it right? Are we even close to what our congregational polity intended for that process to be? Uh,
1: I'm I'm not one to speak to that, but I will say as someone who deals with a lot of business people as well with my day job, um, the, for, 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 I guess looking at this from a marketing perspective, which is what I do for my day job, uh, so many, especially Baptist finance committees or Baptist, I would guess pastoral search committees, are staffed by volunteers and and people, you know, f- from the congregation who may or may not, you know, be ordained or have gone through this process before, but, you know, pretty much are, are business people, you know. And when I when I work with finance committees or when I work with, you know, quote, website committees or technology committees or whatever, it's oftentimes people who volunteer. It's always
0: a committee, though, in the Baptist church. It's always a committee. Well,
1: yeah, you know, it's the old light bulb joke, you know, like how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, one, but then you have to have a committee of 12 people to, to, to argue about, you know, what kind of light bulb to buy and whether the old light bulb needs to be replaced and, you know, do we we like the old light bulb enough and even though it's out, let, let's keep it because, you know, it's the old light bulb and that's the light bulb that my grandma grew up with. Um, So w- when I work with these committees, you know, oftentimes I, I find that it's people who come from the business world and mm-hmm. there's a certain way to do things. And I, I think more and more, if not 100% of the, of the case even if it's a group of deacons or something like that, people are looking at something like a, a pastoral position or a ministerial position or a staff position as something that they would apply also to their business life, if that makes sense. So it's like, well, we're hiring a new pastor. Let's see if, if she can preach really well, but let's also see how she does at managing this. And let's also think about her from kind of that business point of view. You know, it's that pastor as the CEO idea. Yeah. Which I don't I don't I mean people who know me know that I don't subscribe to that, but a lot of people do and a lot of people especially in the Baptist polity unfortunately, I think, look at pastors and ministers as kind of the CEO position. And and that's what I think a lot of um, pastoral search committees sort of You know, even even though they might say we want this and this and this, you know, uh, underlying all of that psychology is, is, well, we want a strong leader who's going to lead our church to growth because that's what the business world, you know, sort of holds up as success. And that's what they think is success. Right.
0: Right. So in the midst of these, this changing dynamics, that is church where you're seeing decline in attendance, decline in membership, decline in giving. You need someone extraordinary to come in and really turn the market around for your for your congregation.
1: Right. Right. And, that, and you need someone who's dynamic and, and they're gonna get in we, we need young people, we need young professionals, we gotta have the people in the suits and ties who are gonna give us money, um, you know, who who are gonna have babies and youth because we're an older church and we, we really we really need some thirty and forty year old couples, you know, who are who are having kids. <laughs> You know, and and, you're and so
0: right, you're so right. And there's
1: nothing better. I've heard this before, uh, having interviewed for church positions. There's nothing better on Sunday morning than seeing our parking lot full of, you know, not not just young families, but but their cars. Like we want to have we want to have Suburbans and and Yukons and and uh, you know, big big family SUVs. Maybe that's the South Carolina thing, but I've heard that more than once.
0: Not trucks. trucks. <laughs> not- not Priuses.
1: Well, you you, yeah. d- you don't want to be the church with the you know the shoddy cars in the parking lot. I mean that that would be like you know being in Galilee and having uh, you know a group of twelve, you know, strange people following you around who kind of smelled bad and had big beards. You don't yeah, want that. And all
0: they owned was a boat, a fishing boat.
1: Did they own the boat? Most it's people. Also a good point. No, <laughs> they did not. The Zebedees did not own the boat
0: yeah so i mean this is this is a strange time to be a minister looking for a for a church because not only i mean it's a strange time in the world of the church, and that's across mainline Protestant churches, not just in the Baptist world but um I mean for me as a woman who is a Baptist who's looking for a senior pastor position, that's revolutionary, but then you add on all of these dynamics of the climate in most churches with budgets. Then you add on the Supreme court ruling last year, a year ago, really when we were in DC with our kids and you add that on top of that. And you have all of these multi layers that you have to go through in the pastor search process. So obviously pastor search committees are, I don't have a name that is um, transgender (laughs) so people know that i'm a woman when i put in an application they know i'm a woman as they look at me and so i'm not getting questions like some of the my you know my colleagues who are transgender or they're not asking me necessarily about my sexuality because they know i'm married to you and that we have kids but there's All of this other part of being in a pastor search process that every pastor search committee that I've been working with or talking to have asked. So first of all, okay, what do you think about growth? What do you think about engaging community? What do you think about budgets? What experience do you have with budgets? And what do you think about same-sex marriage or have you officiated a same-sex marriage or wedding And would you again, or would you, if you haven't? So all of these different things that you have to, when you're in the pastor search process, and I don't think this is the way it it has been in a long time, but you have to take a stand on what you believe immediately. And I, I just, from people that I've talked to in the last 20 years who were ordained, their ordination councils didn't contain these questions. Their pastor search process didn't contain these questions. It was about your leadership. It was about your preaching. You know, now it's about all of these other issues that are issues. It's about
1: where you say it. And, th- and that comes from, again, the the business world, but also the political world. You know, so I can't vote for Hillary because she stands for this and she made this right. vote in 2005. Right. I can't vote for Donald Trump because he said this in 1994.
0: And we can't call this pastor because she's a woman or because she's officiated. A no, extension.
1: because she has this view, you know, and, and – whether or not that's a is that an essential view is that is that something that is a core part of who you are or or part of your ministry, it, you know who knows. Um, and, and in the Baptist world, we we often suffer because we we tend to focus on on the cult of personality with our pastors, whereas something that has a little more, I guess, higher church feel to it or congregational polity, you know, when, when it comes to, not congregational but Uh, a hierarchical uh, polity when it comes to like the Catholic church and the Anglican church, uh, the Lutheran church, or even the Methodist church where the bishop assigns uh, pastors. uh, You you get this idea of, well, the bishop and the bishop's committee decides that this person is right for our congregation. So we're going to welcome her. We're not sure if she's really good fit. I mean, I've seen some Facebook posts that she puts up, but you know what? That's where it is. Um, you know, Catholic Church. there God. I mean, there's no, <laughs> you know, there's no vetting <laughs> from the congregation, right? Even the Lutheran and the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church over in in the UK, and in the Baptist world, with our congregational polity. For as much as I love it, we stress that the pastor has to be kind of this Joel Osteen person who is dynamic and a leader and going to revolutionize our ministry and, and, you know, cause our growth and do all these great things and they have all the right beliefs. And it really is like running for president or, or running for, you know, a, a job. I mean, you're applying for a job, whereas I think in other denominations, you're not applying for a job because you're in the ministry and That's the bishop right. or, or, or whoever is going to help you figure out where you need to go. And sometimes that, that doesn't always work out for the best. Um, but for the most part, I think the Baptist world really... In, in our current context, it, I don't think it's because of the polity. I think it's because of the way that pastoral search committees approach this issue because of education. Um, and yeah. we have we have great groups out there like the Center for Healthy Churches and the Center for Congregational Health and, you know, the CBF groups and all these different groups out there that, that um, you know, try to educate search committees on, on thinking about this in a, in a healthy way. But, you know, uh, most churches don't do that and and even if you know they they employ the center for congregational health or the center for uh healthy churches like i don't i don't know if that's going to be enough of a breakthrough for them to say wait we're not hiring someone to do a job you know <laughs> like we're we're right. we're bringing a pastor into our our into our flock and that's a completely different idea than hiring someone to uh make widgets in your factory but i don't think most people look at it that way especially people in leadership positions Who, for the most part, are old white males? I'm sorry, but you know, there you go. And I'm one, so I can say that. Um, Who are old white males? Old. I'm I'm almost 38. I can say it. Uh, You know, it's that idea of well, you know, I'm a successful white male, and I wear a tie every day, and I can say, um, no, you know, you're you're not right for our congregation. And I really think that's that's. Do do you mean that you're not
0: properly equipped, like?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean that's that's another issue.
0: That I got. (laughs) Yeah, that has well, right, 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 that are right, probably sure. sexist in there. Yeah. Right. Okay, so you're not getting any training. But I, I would argue that this is not a completely congregational experience because, first of all, you have a pastor search committee. And, yes, that pastor search committee comes from the congregation. However, that pastor search committee is going to be the one who makes a recommendation to the church. And I've heard people who are in ministry positions reflect on the fact that if they had had a different pastor search committee, they would not be in the position that they are in at a church where these other people who could have been on the pastor search committee are members. It's such a fascinating kind of roll of the dice experience. It's crazy if we think about it. And then if you add in the fact that some of these churches who need the most help with pastor search can't afford some of the resources that are out there. Right. Because they're in decline, because their budgets are shot, because they're looking for someone dynamic, then where are they supposed to even start? And, and another thing that I think is starting to become a reality that we're really saying out loud, that we need to say out loud, is in the Baptist world, it does depend on who you know. It depends on who you know t- to get out of the slush pile, something think that. So?
1: I mean, It, it think-
0: is. Absolutely it is. Because people are looking for a way to vet the candidates that are there. Because you don't want to get into a situation where you call someone and you have all of these surprises. And because of the congregational polity that exists in the Baptist Church, we don't have a bishop making those recommendations. But people look for recommendations. And so, you know, on my resume, I might have references to people I know. But if the those people don't know the people that i've lifted listed as my references they're gonna go and and find out what they can find out about me
1: well but, th- but that's I'm always been the, the case same
0: thing. i'm gonna do the same thing for the church you know right. that's part right. of the process but we need to say this out loud to people this is part of the process but that, i'm gonna check on you the... and you're gonna check on me
1: sure the, but that's always been the process in the business world you know like uh, if you know someone at the company and you apply for the job you have a much better chance of getting into that position um So, you know, or or someone on the board or, you know, someone on the board says, hey, you should hire this person. So with churches, what I'm saying for me personally, from my kind of outsider point of view, I mean, I I went through this process, I guess, six or seven years ago and decided, yeah, (laughs) I'm going to wash my hands of it. Um, I I think because I I saw this then, I think churches are still doing that same thing where they they kind of vet people based on who you know and – what you said, you know, who gives you references, and and where you've been before, and where you've preached before, and and those are are good markers and good qualities. But you know, when you, when you read the Gospels, I mean, that's kind of in stark contrast to some of the stuff in the Gospels that Jesus said. <laughs> yeah, know? and
0: I think I think that's kind of a natural human thing to do. You know, you're going to find connections if you can. So if I, if somebody was talking the other day and he said something about Dylan and I was like, Oh, my husband is from Mullins. And this sounds really similar because I'm trying to make a connection to that person as he would try to make a connection with me that we try to find some common ground or some connection to kind of, you know, make the world that we're existing in smaller But this, And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do. I think it's important to do. But my issue is that we are not saying this to people who are coming into the ministry, to young ministers who are coming into the Baptist world. We're telling them that there's a system that you can put your resume in and that churches put their request in, and then it suddenly just matches, like a technological bishop. But that's not the way it works. And so we have young ministers who aren't, getting to positions that they would be really great at and that the church would greatly benefit from the experiences that they have. But they're not meeting each other and they're not making connections because we're not saying, okay, this this is how this system works. You know, you have to find somebody who you know in that church and you have to kind of leak the information that your resume is in there. But but
1: that's always been the case uh, in terms of that's not how the system works. And you're not going to figure that out until you're 40. Um you know and, and for the most why? part
0: why do we do that though well, that there's some kind of insider language that you have to well go through the trials and, and work your way up and, and learn your ropes no like the church is dying
1: well it's because we old people are very threatened by young people because you're much better at everything and unless we have something to hang our hat on you know we're, we're going to be out of jobs so for us you know it, it, it benefits us if we've been in the system for 20 or 30 years to say, well, you know, there's a way to do this. And if you don't do this the right way, then you're not going to get a job or you're not going to, you know, have a position. You're not going to be able to pay insurance and you know, things aren't going to go well. So follow the party line or work your way up, work Work your your way way up. up. Just just bear with it.
0: Gosh. And I can't tell you how many people have told me that, um, work your way up. Oh, just wait five years. Well, when I started interviewing for positions, When I was halfway through my seminary career, they told me to wait five years. It's five years later, and guess what? The job market is even more intense and even more competitive. So now you're telling me to wait five to ten years for what? The church, as we know, it's not going to exist in a lot of cases. So there are going to be even fewer positions and even more ministers who are out of the job.
1: Well, I I think you're being a little— Ambitious there. I mean, the church as we know it will exist in five years, and and the church as we know it, in terms of big churches that have a lot of institutional money and endowments and—or, you know, uh, a a group of people who are donating every month, even if they're 80— um, those churches are going to exist in five years. And that's where our institution, as far as Baptists go, I think that's where our institutional emphasis is at this point. Yeah. It's on to, the ma- largest to maintain churches.
0: and protect those. Yeah. Oh, right, but,
1: right, 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 right. And that's why we don't talk about LGBTQ. That's why we don't talk about women in ministry. That's why we don't talk about this or that. Because, right,
0: because the don- domination can't lose that money because that's really the only right. money that exists. Yeah. Okay, but uh, this, It's all about
1: money and power, as my friend Thomas says.
0: It's true. Always trace the mm-hmm. money. Oh, fireworks. Already
1: getting fireworks. Well, wow, that's a...
0: <laughs> they thought that you made a really good point that needed...
1: Boom. Uh, boom. Yeah, that's great. Thank, thanks. I hope Jeez. you wake up the baby firework people at 9 oh. o'clock on a Friday night.
0: You know what, though? We on the
1: that. first. It's not even the fourth.
0: There were some last night, too. I mean, were but we're really? celebrating all weekend long. Okay. Young people. I know. Those whippersnappers. But okay, so in the Methodist tradition, oftentimes if you're a pastor, you have uh what's it called? A try appointment? Uh, where you pastor three different churches. Like a
1: three point charge three, or a five three point. point?
0: Yeah. Three point charge or, or a five, or five point,
1: point charge.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and this is your way to kind of get into uh, a smaller congregation and understand the dynamics. And then you work your way up to where you're going to only one church every week.
1: But in all so, the congregations realize that you are serving three or right. five churches and they, and they're, they don't, you know, and they respect that for the most part.
0: So in the Baptist tradition, this is where we're going to see a lot of change, I think in the next five to 10 years. And I agree with you, like the institutional big churches that those aren't going to change, but we are going to see a lot of movements and What would have been historically in the Baptist tradition, either congregations that came together or congregations that kind of shared a a preacher, right? So you shared a preacher, you decided to have Sunday morning service and Sunday night service, and then that preacher wasn't in charge of pastoral care or administration. The people took care of all that stuff, and you just shared a preacher with another church. But what we have is we have a lot of smaller churches who are expecting their pastor to do everything or who are, you know, they don't have the same kind of let's get together and build a fellowship hall because we can do that. We don't necessarily need the pastor to to do that kind of feel. So where is yeah. that? Where are those congregations going to go? Or the next one up? And so you don't have a starter church, you know, just like you have a starter home. You don't have a starter church for those young ministers to get into to log some of the years of experience that is going to lead them to those other positions. So in the next five years, where are all those young ministers going to go?
1: Well, to me, it goes back to a conversation I've been having uh, off and on with with a friend on Facebook who's not religious. And, you know, his question basically was, you know why do we need churches in 2016? You know, and, and a lot of what you're doing in the church are things that the Kiwanis Club, or you know, the Garden Club, or the uh, the Chamber of Commerce, or you know, whatever, like you're your community organization. You know, like you're you're like the Masons, and it's great, and it's wonderful that you do this work and you do quote missions. Um, but what what do you mean by missions? You know, like. Are you are you trying to convert people, or are you trying to make the world a better place? Because the world needs help. And, and you know, we've been going back and forth here for the last couple of weeks, really, uh, on the, on this topic. And it's a fun conversation that, that we've kind of been going through about, you know, why I think there needs to be a church <laughs> in, in our world, even though Jesus didn't come back in, in his lifetime or in Paul's lifetime. Um, of course, Jesus didn't come back in his lifetime. That would have been... Really interesting. But the son of man did not come <laughs> back, and or the son of man did not come in his lifetime, and Jesus did not come back in Paul's lifetime or in the early church's lifetime, and we had this developing eschatological reality of, of you know, theology and, and, and the interplay of the text and all that stuff. All that aside, you know, it's 2,000 years later. Do we still need this stuff? And on, on some levels, no, because I think when churches act like community groups— when we have when we have Sunday schools that are kind of like self help sessions, or when we have vacation to Bible schools that are basically like summer reading things, or or like kids camps that a lot of other yes, groups are doing,
0: trip. yeah,
1: it, it, it's a way for parents not to have to deal with their kids for three hours. You know, like do I mean not I'm not saying every vacation Bible school is that I'm saying some. Are and they have these themes and they have you know the handouts and on there's there's the cavemen and all that stuff, whatever. Um, it, it feels like the church is trying to replicate too much of what is what they what the church think is is I guess successful in society, but kind of missing the point of what I think Jesus was trying to to do with society. which right, is so, completely I mean, burn this shit down.
0: Well, and let's talk about.
1: Daycares, no, I, uh, yeah, right, right. I mean, nurseries, daycare, uh, preschools, all that stuff, and and yes, that can be a form of ministry. I'm not.
0: It's I'm, meeting a need in society. That is true, but is that what Jesus meant about meeting people's needs?
1: Well, I, I mean, I don't get. I, I don't know, but I, I'm saying when when the church when a church is doing the same thing as the Junior League or the Kiwanis Club or or the 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 Chamber of Commerce or the Shriners, like, what is the role of the church? Like, of course, the church is going to dwindle. <laughs> you know, like yeah. every every organization is dwindling, are... and people are so shocked that the, that the church is losing members. And I say the church, in, in terms of all of Christianity, but especially mainline Protestantism, um, people are shocked that that CBF churches are dwindling. People are shocked that the SBC is is having. So many fewer uh, baptisms and, and uh, you know, churches leaving uh, uh, local associations every year. Uh, of course, they are. Like, churches are dying because.
0: And churches are closing and clo- churches are combining and all of these things that.
1: But not the big churches. And the big churches are the ones that pay the bills. And those That's- are the ones that, that the, if you have money, if you have means, you go to those churches. If not, you go to your small, you know, Little Bethel Baptist Church. But if you, if you have money in Mullins, you go to First Baptist because it's First Baptist. Um, and that church is going to be around for a long time. Little Bethel hopefully will be around for a long time. But, you know, if they die off, well, it's a small little country church. So that's okay. And, and okay. I think and that's how a lot of matter. people look at it. right? Yeah. Right.
0: Or if they have to combine with another local church, that's all right. Right, right. I mean, they should have done that in the first place, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't really need Reedy Creek Baptist and Gapway Baptist and Little Belt hey, Baptist no, all within five miles of, of each other. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we, we have Main Street, and that's the one, that's where all the lawyers go, so that's, or the three law, lawyers of Mullins, that's that's where they go, so let's let's focus on that one.
0: But it's going to be interesting, because as those church, church those smaller churches do combine or close or whatever some of those people are going to end up in a lar- larger church and then suddenly you're going to have some people that you may not have meant to go to church with because that's what, that's one of the reasons you went to first Baptist was not to go to the country church.
1: Right. Right. I mean, you don't want to hear, you know, that hymn. you want to hear, um, you know, whatever. Ave yeah. Maria Baptist song we have, but, but yeah, I, I think there's, there's the, con,
0: the concert concerto, just like you're saying the orchestra. Yeah. Like,
1: You want the handbells.
0: Yeah. Well, you want the Philharmonic, No, the
1: handbells are Methodist, right?
0: Oh, no. It's in the Baptist tradition, too.
1: Is it? Yeah. What Baptist church do you know that does handbells?
0: Do you want me to name all of
1: them? No, just name me. Give me one.
0: First Baptist Asheville?
1: They do handbells? Yep. Huh. (laughs)
0: Use use handbells.
1: I thought that was a Methodist thing.
0: Oh, my church, I grew up. I was in the handbell choir.
1: You were in the handbell choir?
0: Absolutely, I was.
1: (laughs) Did you have a big bell or a little bell?
0: Both, one in each hand. One big one, one little
1: one. Wait, so you didn't like I thought it was all about like tonal scale like didn't you have to have like like you didn't stand in a row like big bells to small bells?
0: I don't remember that.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Wow, I've never seen a Baptist church with bells.
0: Really? Oh, there are lots. I'll send you a list.
1: Yeah, Macedonia Methodist and uh, Mullins had hand bells.
0: They come, they usually come out at Advent
1: and Easter. Yeah, we'll see. Macedonia had it pretty much every Sunday, I believe. At least when I was there.
0: Oh, that's a serious handbell choir.
1: Yeah, no, no I would yeah, say the Baptist deal.
0: church. Handbell choirs are more occasional.
1: A lot of lawyers, a lot of doctors, and stuff. To quote Willie Nelson. So, you know, when when this show started in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, it was Thomas Whitley and, and myself, and the idea was to approach. I guess cultural topics from a Baptist point of view to to offset the idea that Al Moeller was the spokesperson for all Baptist. And then Al Moeller started a podcast, which
0: I don't uh, want to say
1: we influenced him, but I know there you know, we used to tweet with him and I know he listened to a couple of shows. Anyway, uh so the the last episode of Thinking Baptist was in twenty twelve, believe it or not. And that show Yeesh. has 2012, yeah. Four years ago.
0: That was a long time ago.
1: I know. And that was you and Thomas, actually. And, you, and the title of the show was Women in Ministry.
0: Really? That yep. was the last one?
1: Yep. And I, I don't want to go through the whole downloads, but it's tens of thousands of downloads of this one show.
0: Seriously? Yep.
1: yep. And who knows how many listens because it's a, it's a podcast. so you know, who yeah, knows?
0: Again, Thomas, you should write a book. Apparently right. you've got a following, dude.
1: Well, so uh, so Thomas and I took Thinking Baptist, and we spun it out into Thinking Religion. and it, Because
0: he started going to a Presbyterian
1: church. <laughs> because he's a Calvinist. No, but because we, <laughs> we, we, That's we talk what about... Every
0: good Baptist is, apparently. Yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: well, in the upstate. But we, uh, we talk about religion, but we also talk mostly about gear and tech and politics and all kinds of stuff over there on, on Thinking Religion. And so we wanted a, a safe space where we could talk about these things and not be c- sort of confined to the the baptist world um
0: right so you guys did a spin off and then thinking about so, so kind of it just off. evaporated for a little while yeah
1: so it just kind of sat there so so now
0: we're resurrecting it
1: so now this is thinking baptist 18 4 years later you you've been through seminary you were in the middle of seminary at the time when you did that podcast I was in
0: the middle of pastor search yeah,
1: well, and yeah, we're in the true. same
0: place <laughs> I,
1: I, I mean what do you think of have things changed like go back and listen to that show and i'll, I'll put a link in the show notes
0: can't i can't do it <laughs> it's gonna be so frustrating for me to hear my voice saying the same things that i'm saying now four years later
1: you, you think the same things now like i mean no, has i don't anything think changed? think the same
0: things um i'm i'm hmm, I, I think i'm less optimistic and a little bit more disheartened you know i, I was having conversations at general assembly and, and People were telling me the same thing that I've heard since I said I was a preacher, you know, my first year in seminary. Oh, you're called to preach. Oh, well, I, I I don't know if you can find a job because it's, it's really tough out there. I mean, some churches are coming around, but not many. And then I, I found a pastor position and it was a great and wonderful experience of healing for me of being a pastor. And I, was more convinced than I've ever been, except perhaps when I met you, if you want me to get sappy. And I knew I was going to marry you when I met you for the first time. You yeah. didn't know that yet. But no, I, did. I did not. Um, <laughs> you definitely did not. That's a story for another time, though. <laughs> but I, kn- I knew as I was pastoring, like there was nothing about pastoring that I didn't like. I liked it all. I liked the business meeting. I liked the administration aspect of it. I liked the preaching and the preparing. And... The engaging the community and 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 doing helping with relief work and and all of those different aspects of it, and it's so frustrating, I think when you know that you're called to do something and that you've glimpsed that you were able to do that and now you want to do that full time and you and you can't because it just there's just not a place for you. It's a very frustrating experience, but as you started the show with, I think this is. You know, for me, I feel like um, my nose is in the corner a little bit of these dry-walled walls that people have told me exists, And perhaps I just need to bust through them in some way or another.
1: Well, I mean, how do you think – I mean, what does that mean? Like Facebook post, or how do you bust th- through those dry walls?
0: Yeah, and that's the, that's the part because – the other thing that has happened over the past past four years is I now know that I'm not the only one who's experiencing this frustration. I know there are other women in ministry who have been up in some cases for up to five different positions and out, out of all five positions have lost out to a male. Now, when that happens once you're like, okay, well, You know, I made it to the top two. That's awesome. When it happens twice, you think, oh, okay, well, this person had this on me. You know, I can see how this happened. It's kind of like how it happened. When it happens five times and it's a male in every case, you start to see that there's something systematically that's going on.
1: Well, I mean, as a male, let me say that I I think in 2012, when you and Thomas did that show... And you and I were having these conversations about, okay, am I going to get a job one day? Um, the idea of the economy and where we are and where the church is and where churches are and where giving is and mm-hmm. church numbers, all that stuff, people were were all very optim or not very optimistic, but, but people were optimistic.
0: Yeah, I mean, we started seeing it like we, we survived 2008,
1: right? Right, right. So in we 2012. We survived it. We
0: made through that.
1: Yeah. yeah I, I remember thinking.
0: Things, things are climbing. Things are climbing. Yeah,
1: it, it can't get any worse than it has been. And no, there's not going to be a new normal. We're going to get back to where we were in 2005, 2006. Uh, young people are going to have increasing salaries. They're going to be buying houses. Uh, they're, be uh, they're, they're going to be taking out mortgages. They're going to be spending a lot of money. They're going to be going to church. They're going to give... You know, to 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 missions and and giving opportunities and that kind of thing, and that really hasn't happened. I mean, two thousand eight, we can call it a recession, but in some ways, it really was a depression, and we're still yeah. we're still kind of realigning with that. And and you millennials are going to be the first group, the first generation of Americans that are basically worse off than the generation before you, and it's all the baby boomers' fault. Right, so,
0: because. Because of the debt that we incurred during that period of time to try to make it through.
1: Well, and, so- and you know, a lot of millennials are still living at home and you're you're doing things like, you know, you're, I mean, just even in the ways that you consume media, you know, like you have Spotify and there's there's uh, streaming Netflix and there's all this stuff. Like you're not going out and buying DVDs and CDs. You're not going out and buying things to own. Right. You're not going on buying homes. If you live in an urban environment, you're taking Uber. You're not going out and buying a car. Right. You're not even buying a bicycle. Like, there's City Bike in New York City, which is huge and it's awesome. You can just rent a bike and just.
0: We had that on Perman's campus, let me just tell you. It was called Green Bike.
1: Yeah, and it's a great idea. But, like, it basically means, like, you don't have to go out and buy the stuff. Like, you can rent it and do the same thing that you're doing
0: which is going into the into the home market. You know, I don't know very many people who own a home. Right. They right. rent. Who are your age. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I mean to to translate that into kind of the wider church landscape. I think a lot of churches were caught off guard by the suddenness of the of the disruption in, in that economy of young people who unlike people who were, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 even, uh you know 20 30 year olds who are growing up and saying well we're not going to you know I can't give 10% to the church like I don't have that income and I don't have a house I don't have this I'm not going to I'm not going to write a check and sit in a pew every week and like what what the hell's a check <laughs> <You know? laughs> like what is a dollar bill I mean I'm 38 I I can't remember the last time I carried cash like sometimes I write checks But not very often. Like everything is electronic. But you have
0: to go to the bank to buy the check to write.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or, or no, I pull up my phone and I'm like, send a check to this person. Yeah. Um, through my, you know, my banking app. But how many people do we know that have said, well, you know, the church is going to be fine because you know we're going to get young people and the young people are going to sit down and and write checks on Sunday morning. That's not going to happen.
0: It's not going to happen. And the other dynamic is when you do have those young professionals who are there, and I've heard many people talk about this, is that you have a transient young adult population. So because of the recession and because that we've never really fully recovered, I don't even know if recovered is the right word, but you have people who are moving and they're moving quickly in order to pursue a good job. And so you have people who come in and they invest for a year and a half, two years and young ministers are kind of notorious for this. And and churches are giving millennials uh, and young ministers a bad name for this in the Baptist world. You can't commit to anything. Well, the fact of the matter is that salary that you're paying a young minister isn't sustainable. And if you got a family, it certainly isn't sustainable. And so there has to be movement in order to, uh, If you want to say climb the ladder, climb the ladder. But you have to be constantly looking for opportunities that are going to provide your family um, more stability. Or you're going to, you know, if this church has a loan, a student loan retainment plan, or this church is offering benefits or health insurance and the church I'm currently in is not, then if we're going to treat this like a job, I'm going to go to the better job. And it's over there at that church. So see ya. And that's the thing that's happening in churches, that churches don't really understand the candidates kind of situation of, okay, this is a calling. It is, but it's also my job and profession. And in the pastor search process, ministers are learning this is more of a job than a calling. And so you have this kind of intermeshing of... This is a calling, but I also need it to provide for my family in some way. That's providing another interesting dynamic. And perhaps that's always been a part of church.
1: Well, I mean, I think it has, but I think, again. But
0: I think it's different when people are are in the economic situations that they're in.
1: Yeah. And
0: churches are in the economic situation. Because the other fact of the matter is that a lot of churches are looking at young ministers because they're cheaper.
1: Well, you know, that too, or they're looking at older ministers because they're cheaper as well, and they're willing Mm -hmm. to work for less. Retired
0: ministers, yeah. Well,
1: or or trying to retire because you can't retire because the Baptist world doesn't really look out for its ministers in terms of retirement and and those types of things, unless you're in the CBF and you have, what is it, what's the, uh, I mean, the SBC, what's the SBC uh, insurance retirement thing? Guidestone? Guidestone, right. So unless your church is aligned with that, and and you can pay into that, and and you can be covered by that. I mean, you know, like if you're 65 and you thought you were going to retire when you're 65, but all of a sudden 2008 happened when you were 57, and you're like, well, crap, I'm going to have to keep on working (laughs) for a few years. Right. But you know what? You know what? First Baptist Church, I have a lot of experience. I'm a great person. I've got a lot of, you know— uh, stuff built up, uh, you, you know my name, and I'm going to work for twenty percent less than that young person's going to take, or, or or you know that young person's going to cost you. So, you know, hire me, and and church is going to hire that person, and they think, well, you know, we'll we'll get two to three, four, maybe five years out of them, and they're known quantity, whereas yeah, someone straight and out of gonna school, hold, they're going to hold huh? the
0: boat steady because they've they've dealt with. Uh, conflict they've dealt with tension, and we know that this man, because let's be honest, if you're looking in that demographic, it's usually a man, is going to hold the boat steady.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: But it, I mean, it's it's a it's a crazy time to be a church. It's a crazy time to be a minister who's looking for it. But in my experience, since that's what we started with, and I don't know, I'm making this show about me, I guess um, that. You know, I have to have a real kind of coming to Jesus moment of, okay, well, maybe I just go find a different profession for five to seven years doing, you know, pulpit's fly or what else. Or you and I have talked about this because of the work that we've been doing at the Translations Homeless Shelter. We just start something, which is kind of what we've done.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Just trying to figure out that that middle ground.
0: And then also, you know, this ministry that we've been doing at Transitions, which has been an incredible experience and so challenging to me to be with a community that has so much faith but hasn't had the opportunity or the space to worship. And now we've been doing this for eight weeks together to learn from them, but also for the freeing aspect of this isn't making money, you know, <laughs> and so it's a completely different experience than working for a church if that makes sense yeah it's, not a, yeah it's not a job it is a calling you know it's something that we schedule our jobs around in order to do
1: which is what I think Paul did expand
0: expand on that to some people who might not. No, the reference you're well, I
1: mean, making. You know, Paul wrote two thirds of the New Testament. Uh, we attribute two thirds of the New Testament to Paul, I should say. Um, and Paul kind of ran against the grain of the established early Jesus community, or the community that that had formed around uh, the the person of Jesus after Jesus had been executed and, and supposedly resurrected. And that was based in Jerusalem and evidently led by Jesus's brother, James. And there was what we called the the Jerusalem church, even though, you know, it wasn't a church, they were still Jewish. Um, nothing that Jewish, uh, anyway. So Paul comes along in the mid to late forties and says, well, I had an experience with the risen Jesus on the way to persecute some Christians or Jesus followers in, in Damascus, and I am going to go to the desert for a couple of years and figure out what this means. And then he comes back, and, and we don't... According to Galatians, he doesn't really abide by that Jerusalem group. I mean, there's all kinds of fun things going on there, you know, political-wise, between Acts and, and Galatians. But Paul basically establishes a different path for early Christianity or the early followers of Jesus after his death and resurrection. And he says, look, I don't really care about the historical Jesus. I know James is very important to you all. I know that that person of Jesus was important to you all, but to me, it's the risen Jesus. And he equates him almost with like an angel figure. Um, And, and for Paul, the, the risen Jesus was the most important thing. Paul also realized that as a Pharisee or as a former Pharisee, and maybe as a Pharisee, and until he died, uh, it, it, being a minister or being a pastor or whatever you want to call first-century, you know, religious leaders, that wasn't a full-time job. You know, so he still did his day job, which is basically leatherworking. So we want to say he was a tent maker. Uh, just like we say Jesus was a carpenter, even though Jesus was not a carpenter, he was a technet. He worked with his hands, just like Joseph uh, did. He, he was one of the guys who would go to Home Depot and stand there in the morning and wait to get picked up and taken to a construction site and go work in Sepphoris for the day. And the same thing with Paul. Paul was not a tent maker. Paul was a, a some sort of a, a tanner or, or leather worker in that, in that case. Also worked with his hands. And that's what he did for his day job. And he moved throughout the Mediterranean. Um, you know, up through Turkey and to into Greece, uh down through um you know, what, what we think of Asia Minor and back to Greece and then back down into Palestine. But he was constantly finding employment in these places and he would stay there for a couple of years and, and create a church or create a, a, a community of Jesus followers. Again that word church is dubious, um in the first century. And I, I think we we miss out on a lot of Paul's message, when we try to make Paul into this Joel Osteen figure, you know, who's standing yeah. in, a, in a suit and tie, in church, front of,
0: church starter,
1: right? And church starter, right? Kids, right? Exactly no, exactly. no, no, no. Paul wasn't a church starter. Paul was on fire for the Lord, and Paul was working
0: and found people who wanted to talk about that. But I will say another thing that I think we miss is that Paul depended upon people's hospitality.
1: Well, yeah, well it's, it's sort of. Let, let me say this too. We we know even in Second Peter, and First Peter, uh, we have the paroikoi, which we we translate in our twenty first century spiritualized New Testament into uh, the uh, aliens. You know, we're, uh, we're not from this place. We're, we're aliens. We're going to float up to heaven one day. If if you read First Peter, it's not aliens or Second Peter. It, it's paroikoi, which means the workers beside the house. They're itinerant workers which is what I think Paul was. He was an Mm -hmm. itinerant worker. He was living in Guatemala. A (laughs)
0: freelancer.
1: Well, I mean, and even that's too much privilege. He was working in Guatemala. He was working in Mexico. He was working in South Carolina. You know, he'd pick cotton. Then he would move back to to Mexico to go pick cotton. And and during that season, then he would go to Guatemala to, to pick the avocados. And then he would come back to South Carolina to pick the tobacco. And he would make the rounds. And that really seems a lot like what Paul was doing. And it seems like what we get in first Peter with these parole which means workers that live beside the house because they they don't have enough money to live inside of a home in, in the first century in the ancient Mediterranean, like most homes in in Asia minor and and in Syria, Palestine where the first floor would be kind of like uh, where you kept the animals at night, right? It's almost like a barn idea. And second and maybe third story would be where you slept, if not sleeping on the roof so I think Paul and a lot of early Christians were kind of these itinerant workers. And today Donald Trump would call them Mexicans mm. and, and, and he was having to work for his money so that he could do what he loved and what he thought he was called to do. And I think that meant being a, a, a Pharisee and, and being uh, someone who was, uh, you know, on fire for for Jesus and, and spreading the word about that. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I but it needs to, to be said, said because, I, I, won't, I, won't go
0: yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, if you haven't <laughs> listened to Thinking Religion, then you know that he's really just getting warmed up.
1: Well, or, you know, or dinner conversations. But, yeah, I, I just. It's
0: its why the pianist and Emmanuel had to play him off when he was teaching Sunday school. That was she only had only once. To start, only once. She had to pl- start playing the prelude.
1: Keyboard cat. Hmm. <laughs> what do you think? Do you want to keep doing it? You like the show?
0: Wait, what are you talking about? Are you talking about ministry or are you talking about <laughs> – There's are yes. so many choices here.
1: All right. So what do you think about ministry? Do you want to keep doing the – do you think this is a, a valid path for you?
0: I think it is a valid path, but I, I think that I'm coming around to the understanding that not – and I'm not the only one. I, I'm not saying – you know, I've received this vision from God that this is how it is. But, but that you need to have a day job. And that ministry is a part of who you are and a part of your call, to be sure. But that's not going to necessarily mean driving up to a church to go sit in your office anymore. You know, that's not going to be a reality that exists for a lot of ministers who want to serve. You're going to have to create... Uh, places and spaces for ministry to happen. Not that the church isn't going to exist, but the church as a job, the minister as a job is going to change drastically, especially for those of us who are young ministers or for those of us who are in associate positions. And we, we've already, we've already started seeing that to be true.
1: Well, there's just no money.
0: There's not, there's not money. Nope.
1: I mean, that's, if there was money you, you would have a job you know 365 days ago
0: yeah and i think that that's one of the aspects that it's going to be really rough you know i went into this knowing from my seminary experience number 1 that the bivocational was was probably going to be the reality of most churches number 2 there were a lot of people who were who i was in class with who were doing ministry and doing a full-time job. And I think that's one of the great dynamics that existed at Gardner web for those people who went to seminaries where you had the idea that you were going to get a job, that you were going to have benefits and you were going to have insurance and you were going to have retirement and that, that ministry was going to be a stable position for you. This is going to be much more shocking. It's going to be very difficult. You think? Yeah. Because I've heard more than one people say, if I don't have a job in ministry, I don't know what I would do. I can't do anything else. I've spent 12 years in this. I've spent, uh, you know, my undergrad is in religion. My master's is in divinity. What what do you do if you're not doing this?
1: Yeah. What do you think about the show? Do you want to keep going?
0: Oh, yeah. What have I got to do? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I would love to keep this conversation going.
1: And as as we say that, it just started pouring outside.
0: Oh, thank goodness. I forgot to water the herbs.
1: <laughs> you have to water the, the herbs.
0: They've been sitting on the steps for two days because here it's been threatening rain for two days. And today right. I thought, I'm going to finally water them. And I didn't. And maybe now it's that, pouring. Now it's pouring. Okay, that means that the firework people will... Uh, Maybe go inside.
1: Now you're anti-firework too?
0: Uh, Now that we have an eight-month-old, yeah. (laughs) I love you. I love you too.